Thank you, Alan. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Romans as we're going through this letter that Paul has written to the church there. We're going to take our text this morning out of Romans chapter 9, verse 30 to 33. One of the things that I've noticed a lot of people like to watch on YouTube and those kinds of things are, are other people and their mishaps. You know, they're stumbling through life, they're failing, and, and we, we have all kinds of montages of people and their fails, right? And, and so we just kind of laugh at people as they, as they stumble and as they trip over things. And because it's so funny, one of the things that people dislike is when they're the ones that are stumbling and tripling over things and people catch them doing that. Have you ever been the one to do that? You know, that's, that's been me a lot of times. Many times, uh, I have to admit it, that I, I've walked through the house at night with the lights off. My wife has caught me a couple times banging into things when all of a sudden she turns the light on and there I, I'm, I'm hitting something, all right? And, and, and I think we walk through the, the place in the dark because we convince ourselves we know where everything is. And, and we're fine with that. And we just will feel our way around and, and, and we're smart enough to, to, to know that I can go this far and then turn right or turn left and, and get to where I want to go. Besides, you know, we know exactly where that chair is. We know where the door is. The problem arises that I think we don't turn on the lights because we want to go right back to sleep. You know, and, and I think for some of us, if we turn the lights on, it means we're really going to be awake now. And so we want to avoid that at all costs. Sometimes we don't turn on the lights because of our own arrogance. And, and we just think that we can walk through the house simply based upon our knowledge. Well, even though you just walked last night, or you may have stumbled through last night, because you've walked past the couch and you forgot that that tennis shoe was out in the middle of the floor and you tripped over it, or, or maybe it was the chair that you were using as you were embracing it as you were watching the football game yesterday, and somehow now it's laying there by the chair, and, and you go past it, and all of it, they become these stumbling blocks for us, and we crash and fall. Why don't people turn on the light? I mean, it would be just simple, wouldn't it? It would be just simple, because I think we're unwilling to say that we need it, and that we're unwilling to admit about our own lostness in the dark because we think we've got it all together. Our pride tells us we don't need the light. And even in our houses, while we may have loads of self-confidence, there are still things that are going to trip us up and cause us to stumble and fall. Stumbling around can only get us hurt. That's just the way it is. Stumbling around may even take you in the wrong direction, and then you're really going to get hurt. Our text in Romans, in chapter 9, has an interesting light to shed on this topic of stumbling. For those who are stumbling in their own lives, which are the, the Jewish people, according to Paul, you see, while one person rejects an idea, they're incapable of, of doing things on their own, another person accepts the fact that they need somebody to help them, and they need a Savior. So Paul has brought to our attention this problem specifically with the people of Israel, God's chosen nation. He tells us they've become lost. Not that they thought they were lost, 
because they thought they knew exactly where they were. But the reality is they are lost, but they don't feel lost. So since they don't feel lost, God has to have messed up somehow, and He has failed. And so that's what they've been accusing God of. It's not that they have done anything wrong. God is the one at fault here because they know exactly what they're doing. Sounds like a familiarity to us, you know? We think we know we're in the right, and somewhere God just needs to catch up with us. However, Paul is demonstrating that Israel's lostness, not all of them, mind you, but he's saying that most of them, because very few people of Israel were accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as their Messiah. Their lostness is the result of their effort to be saved by law-keeping, he says. Their, Their obedience to the law, rather than by grace through faith, which he's had this big topical discussion about. And in so doing, it is their failure, Paul says, not God's. It's their failure that has created the problem rather than God's. So let's look at our text this morning, Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, though the Jews are the main focus of this section of of Scripture, the Gentiles are mentioned here by way of a, a contrast for Paul. The very thing the Jews were seeking but failed to achieve, the Gentiles, they attained even though they weren't even seeking it. And this is what the problem is. So let's look at the Gentiles to begin with. The reason that they attained this acceptance by God and the Jews did not. It's all about righteousness is what Paul says. So he says there in verse 30, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, it's a righteousness that is by faith. Paul asks that question, what shall we say then? A lot of times he'll use that as a question in in, in, in introducing a false narrative or inference or an idea that he thinks that they're going to come up with. So he needs to proceed and give them this refutation. But here, this question serves simply to introduce his own ideas and his teaching rather than being argumentative about something. So what shall we say? About what? What's triggered this question? Well, no doubt it's about what he has just recently said here in chapter 9 and, and, and prior to that. So, <coughs> this is Paul's answer. What shall we say? Well, he says, the Gentiles they received righteousness even though they weren't going after it. It just doesn't make sense 
is what the question is coming up. So what is this righteousness that they have obtained? Most would agree that Paul is not speaking about moral character and righteousness, but rather possessing a, a righteous status before God. In, in other words, being able to stand in God's presence unashamed. They've made a right position before God. And Paul pictured it as something that should be pursued, and so he's using almost this race terminology or this going after it. Basically, we have this problem. The Gentiles, while not pursuing this righteousness, somehow they get it. They've received it. They weren't striving to have a right relationship with God. Why not? I mean, isn't that what we all should be doing? We would think that would be the case, that, that they wouldn't want to be right with God. But you have to get this. The Gentiles had no relationship with God. This was just the people of Israel who had this relationship with God. On occasion, there might be a Gentile who would want to become a Jewish proselyte, like become a part of the club, but not really be a Jew, so that they could worship God. There were those people who did that. But basically, because righteousness is the opposite of sin, which is a violation of the requirements of God's law, even John tells us that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. He says, sin is lawlessness. And the Gentiles, they don't identify their lostness problem with sin. Most people today don't identify that. Matter of fact, when we're talking with people today who are outside of Christ, they don't see a problem with their sin, at least not one that is really detrimental. And it's true because without special revelation, the only known means of being right with God is, is this maybe having this moral compass that you try to live by. But the Gentiles, they weren't particularly attracted to morality and pursuing holiness. In fact, the pagan world is often identified by their wickedness rather than their holiness. So they weren't looking for righteousness. Non-Christians and non-Jews typically see their problems as something like uh, finitude or suffering or ignorance or, or a cycle of reincarnation until we get things right or, or physical existence or the problem might be death. But they don't see it as righteousness before God. And none of those are the opposite of righteousness. So Gentiles really have no reason to seek it because it does nothing for them from what they would perceive. Rather, they conclude that the solution to their problem would be something like gaining more knowledge, wisdom, or self-awareness. Maybe it would be their, that they would gain more power or escape from some kind of physical experience or existence or union with the universe or God. Or they might see that a problem would be that they, they would be able to have happiness or peace or social justice should be taking place. Even in some churches today in America, there is this misconstrued idea of the gospel, and so they are preaching a... A gospel of self-esteem or a health and wealth gospel or one of social justice 
rather than one of sin that leads to death and pursuing Christ that leads to righteousness. Now, we need to remember that our basic problem really is our sin, our unrighteousness. All right? and, and we need righteousness, that state of being right with God, and we need to be right with His laws. So, even though the Gentiles were not pursuing this righteousness, Paul says they've attained it. They got it. And the Jews are scratching their heads wondering, how did this do this? Well, he uses these words, pursue and attain, and they go together. Literally, it's, it's like pursuing a prey and catching it. You know, a quarry and, and you're a hunter and you're going to get it. Or it could be this, this ability to, to run after a prize in a race and you're the victor and you win. So he says they weren't pursuing it and yet somehow they have attained it. Now, figuratively... This pursuit and attainment can refer to pursuing some kind of a goal or an objective rather than something real and tangible. But even then, they weren't going after this. So what is unusual is the Gentiles here, they have attained this goal, they have won this prize without even seeking it. This is actually the fact of what the New Testament is telling us. It's not about them or us seeking it, but the gospel message is about God seeking them. So this is a uniqueness that is taking place here. God is actively pursuing the Gentiles to be His people through the preaching of the gospel message, and thereby accepting the gospel message, they receive the prize that the, Gentile, or that the Jews were going after. In the Old Testament... God did not pursue the Gentiles. There was no worldwide evangelistic campaign to get them into His family. It just wasn't there. He was focusing on a small group of people, the descendants of one man, Abraham, because His objective was to bring Jesus into the world, and so He had to impart this into a family group that eventually becomes a nation, and they're blessed by God. So that's who he was focusing on. But now in these days, God has opened his focus to something beyond just the Jews. Jesus himself even clarifies this before he goes into heaven. In Matthew chapter 28, we've got this last statement of Jesus that is recorded there beginning in verse 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Catch that? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, not just the Israel people, but everybody in the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And then he says, and I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, more specifically in this passage of Scripture here in Romans chapter 9, Paul is saying that the Gentiles, they have obtained this righteousness not by being perfect law keepers, and therefore they have somehow earned righteousness by their own works. But they've earned it based on their faith in Jesus Christ. As this is God's free gift of righteousness, and He's putting that in us in the saving work of Jesus. 
Robert Haldane, in his commentary, he makes this statement. He says, A free salvation becomes an offense to men on account of their pride. Why? Well, he says, men desire to do something to merit their salvation, at least in part. But the requirement of gaining our salvation is simple. Trust. You put your trust in Jesus. And once we settle on our sinfulness and we see that Jesus is the only one who can be our Savior, then we're called to simply put our trust in Him. And I love how Jesus kind of reframed this in His listeners as, he was, you know, as if they were asking Him, what can we do, get that, to be saved? They say that a lot. What must I do to be saved? What can I do to get to go to heaven? It's all based on works. And so Jesus responds here in John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, when he says this. He says, as if they were saying that they want to work. So he says, well, here's your job. You want to do something? This is what you do. Jesus answered them, and he said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, this, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. You want to do something? Well, here's the work for you. Believe in Him who He has sent. Simple. Matter of fact, it's similar to what we read in Acts chapter 16, verse 30 and 34. Paul and Silas have been in, in prison, and an earthquake shakes up the prison, and they bust out kind of like these five inmates that kind of escaped this past week, right? You know, But they got caught again. Well, so did Paul and Silas. In the middle of the night when this happens... But this is the story. The jailer finds them sitting there in jail. Then he brought them out of the jail, out of the mess of the rubble. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, what do I need to do? It's all based upon our works. And they said this, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What do you need to do? You can't do anything but faith. That's what Paul's telling us here in Romans 9. It's not about how good of a person you are. It's not about how much money you give to the church. It's not about how many good deeds you do in your community through social justice. It's about putting your faith in Jesus and in Him alone. So the Gentiles, they attain this righteousness not by works, rather by faith. So, there's the Gentiles. Now let's turn the page over to the Jews and find out what is the reason for the Jews' lostness. What happened here? Well, here's the irony in all of this. While the Jews didn't pursue righteousness and they attained it anyway, Israel was pursuing it with gusto and they didn't get it. The difficulty in their pursuit was not the goal, righteousness, but it was the manner in which they were pursuing it. They pursued it by works instead of by faith. 
This word law, namos, is often used in a sense of like a principle or a rule or, or an order or a custom. However, the best understanding in this passage of Scripture in our text would render it speaking about the law of Moses, which the Jews obviously pursued with zeal. I mean, they were after the law of Moses. They, they were trying to do everything they could to prove to themselves that they are keeping the commands of God by doing it outright. Israel was pursuing this law of righteousness, but by their own effort. Yet the law itself, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, points us to Jesus. So he says, so then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified, how? By faith. With the coming of Christ, the law becomes obsolete, as the book of Hebrews tells us. It's not about obedience, 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 just to go through the motions, because it's about faith. So it makes me stop and ask this question. What makes the law of Moses a law of righteousness? Now we must remember that righteousness means conformity to a proper and relevant standard or norm. So we conform ourselves to something that God says is how we should live. That's what righteousness is. And that means that any form of God's law of righteousness, whether it be, as Paul said in Romans 2.15, engraved on our heart, or whether it be the Mosaic law, or whether it be this new covenant law that Christ has established, any of these that we are supposed to conform ourselves to that standard by which we then are obligated to live by. We need to live by these things. The law of Moses was the standard or the norm for the Jews in the Old Testament covenant. All right? And that then would lead them to righteousness. It was to be measured, and it was their way of living because God established it that way. But here in Romans chapter 9, verse 31, Paul says, But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, they did not succeed in reaching that law. Paul is, is he's, he's lamenting over the fact that his fellow Jews, his kinsmen, his family, they're missing the boat somehow, and, and they don't get it. And, and so they've pursued this law of righteousness, but they didn't catch it. In essence, what's happening is, they didn't catch it because it's always out in front of them. You remember that Roadrunner and Wiley e. Coyote, right? I mean, that's what's going on. They think they're going to get it this time, but they've missed it. So what exactly did they hope to gain by pursuing their law of righteousness through works? By conforming their lives to the conduct of this law of Moses. They didn't think they were going to get righteousness in the sense of having a perfect moral character because they knew that wasn't going to happen. But they wanted to have a right standing before God. They wanted God to like them, to accept them, to continue to call them His people and to love them and embrace them. That's what they were going after. And they thought they'd achieved it because after all, are we not God's people? But they didn't get it. And that's the very thing that they wanted is the very thing that the Gentiles got simply by faith. So, what went wrong? 
What was it that kept the Jews from obtaining this righteousness that they so earnestly pursued? Well, Paul said it in verse 32 there. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Now, here's the point that I think we must not overlook. It was technically possible for the Jews to obtain this right standing before God by pursuing their law of righteousness and the law of Moses as long as they pursued it by faith. But they weren't. Paul has already addressed this issue with them and their failure to be perfectly obedient to the law, so they know that their obedience has blown it. That nobody can be saved by perfectly obeying the law because we all have sinned and fallen short, right? Paul has told us that in chapter 3. They could seek the forgiveness of their sins through this redemptive process that God has established in the sacrificial system of His covenant with Him in the Old Testament. All right? But that sacrificial system was just a type. It was a copy or it was a a preliminary to what was coming in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, Paul says there is a small remnant of people who were Jewish who got it. They understood. And they put their faith in that, that sacrifice of Jesus. And so they met the requirements and they received the gift of God's righteousness. The most obvious way in which the Jews living in Paul's error should be to put their, their faith and their trust in the very one whom he has sent, Right? But they didn't do it. Pre-Christian Jews did not know Jesus as such. They knew that they were sinners. They knew and understood that they were lawbreakers as measured by all the moral and legal requirements of their law. And they knew from the laws of sacrifice the principle of atonement and justification via substitution. So we will sacrifice this bull and this goat and it will take my sins. All right? But they're not willing to accept the sacrifice of Jesus to take their sins. The sacrificial system enabled them to know that their sin and their idolatry could be forgiven by God. And those Jews who trusted this gospel message about Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, they're the ones who would receive it. And they had this right standing before God. So Jesus points this out when he tells a parable in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Now he's got a group of guys who are around him who are questioning him. And, and, and really when you look at their character, Matthew tells us all about them. So let's look here. So Jesus, he also told this parable to who? To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they treated others with contempt. So here's the parable. Two men, they went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Now the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, 
would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now listen what Jesus says. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other man, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Romans, says, The law, with its uncompromising demand of perfect love and obedience, should have driven each Israelite to God with this fervent prayer, O God, be thou merciful to me, a sinner. And some Jews were driven, but most were not. And unfortunately, most were like the Pharisees in this parable who were thankful they were not like the tax collector. They were basing all their their relationship with God upon their pursuit of righteousness by keeping the commands. Israel as a whole pursued it, Paul says, by works rather than by faith. And this is, in fact, Paul's point in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Romans. Now, what Israel did, in effect, was to transform their law code into a law system. And as a law code, the law of Moses was a simple set of commands for them to obey and to conduct their life. But the moment it became a law system regarding their obedience as an acceptance by God, as a law system by way of their salvation, that's where they got lost. You see, because a law system, as we've talked about in the past, can never save sinners. The grace system does. Paul goes on saying here in Romans chapter 3, verse 32, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. I mean, this is the main point of the Jews and how they've missed this. In this age of Jesus and the new covenant, God had warned them back in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 15, that they were going to stumble So listen what Isaiah says, But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary, a safe place, a place of refuge, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, and they shall be a snare, snared and taken. So he's already warned them in Isaiah. He writes in his commentary on Romans, This is not a stone over which one may merely stumble and recover oneself, but one against which one runs with his entire body and smashes it entirely. It's like knocking one's brains out. You see, that's what we're doing. This law of righteousness by which they're trying to live by works to gain their salvation They're just beating themselves up. 
And it's never going to work. It's no wonder that when God appeared on the scene incarnate in the life of Jesus, that the Jews of that generation stumbled against Him as well. They rejected Him because He did not fit within their eschatological ideas of what Messiah should be like. And so they banged their heads against the wall and they stumbled. Paul then brings in reinforcements. He goes to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, and Isaiah 28, verse 16, and he, he combines these two masterfully, and he says, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This verse expands this stumbling stone concept and implicitly implies it to Jesus Christ. Stone and rock are two different Greek words. The stone of stumbling uses the word lithos. Lithos refers to a loose rock, whether it be a little pebble or a big, big rock you can pick up and move. It's a loose rock, all right? But the rock of offense uses the word petra, which is referring to generally an immovable rock, a bedrock or a rock mass, whether it's underground or it's above ground like a cliff. It's one that you're just not going to move. And so he's saying that Jesus has become this that's going to cause them to stumble and one in which they're going to run headlong into and they're not going to move it. He's combining Isaiah 8.14 and 28.16 into one statement here. And in 8.14, God is presented as both a refuge and a sanctuary, a stone of judgment. And in 28.16, He is solely represented as a place of safety and refuge. But as Paul combines these two, he turns Jesus into both this stone of judgment, but also a stone of promise. You're either going to stumble over him and you're going to bash yourself, or you're going to find safety and refuge in him. Which one's it going to be? That's who he has become. Jesus is this stone that causes men to stumble on a rock that makes them fall. But this does not mean that God wants anyone to stumble over him or that he intended the Jews to fall because of him. The stone is intended as a stone of refuge, a place to hide within and to be protected. But because they have rejected him, the one who was meant to be their place of security, he now has become their stumbling block. Now, in light of all this, it's easy to see how Jesus can be a stumbling stone. Those who oppose him or who take offense at the gospel, they fall into eternal ruin and death. It's like bashing your head like Wile E. Coyote did right into that cliff. You may think that you've created a passageway and a roadway, but as soon as you hit it, it takes you nowhere. This is what happened to the Jews, and it can happen to anyone. Matter of fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 24, he says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Then he says, for Jews 
they demand signs. And Greeks, they look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That, my friends, is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, this isn't the whole story. God lays in Zion a stone that some will fall over. But look what he says in verse 33. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, those who take refuge in the rock by trusting in him will never have to slink away in shame for having made such humiliating decisions walking around in the dark. As A.F. Bruce says, those who trust in God need never fear that their trust in Him will prove to be ill-informed. God vindicates His people's faith. Now in these three verses, 31, 32, and 33, Paul is vindicating the faithfulness of God by declaring Israel as a whole as responsible for their own lost condition. God did not fail them. They failed themselves. And the essence of their failure was that they trusted in themselves rather than in God's promises and in their own Messiah. And they pursued acceptance with God by works rather than by faith. They chose law over grace. You see, life is like a stumbling around in the darkness when we get up in the middle of the night. Maybe we're just getting up to get a drink of water, but we're too proud to reach over and turn on the lights because we think that we know all we need to know. We got it all in hand. And even though we stumble, the next time we get up, we still won't turn on the light. How many times do we need to bang our heads against the wall before we're willing to turn on the light? Everyone has the opportunity to turn on the light. Everyone has the opportunity to put their faith in the Son of God and let His light shine in their lives. Everyone has the opportunity to stop their stumbling with a simple confession of faith in Jesus Christ and the one who went to the cross for them so that they don't have to worry about their right standing with God. His right standing with God is imputed to us when we put our faith in Him, when we trust in Him, and when we quit trusting in ourselves and we allow ourselves to die to self, to be buried with Him, to take His name, and to be raised out of that grave into new life in Jesus. I want to ask you, will you let His light shine in your life? Or are you going to continue to stumble around in the darkness of this world? Put your faith in Jesus and in His work because all of your efforts are useless. It's not about doing. It's about believing that He did. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for what He has done and in, in covering up our sins by His blood on the cross, by His body that was broken. And Father, it's not about our own righteousness because it's, it's ugly.
We are, we are dirty with the sin in our life, and we need to be made clean. We need to be washed by His blood that makes us whiter than snow. We need to be cleansed from our unrighteousness and clothed with His robe of righteousness. We need to die to ourselves and live to Him. Father, we are so thankful that it's not based upon our works, but your grace and our faith in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.